0: And we're going to look at a very difficult passage. (laughs) Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. Oh, what a joy to see so many gathered, Lord. We know there's people in overflow, we know there's still people at home that. Have, have not yet been able to come out Due to procedures or surgeries Or just uh, just scared to, to maybe venture out Because of medical issues Lord we do love them And we can't wait for them to be back with us But we thank you how you gather the church Even in these unique circumstances is This is your church This belongs to Christ It's not Riverbend's It's not the elders It's Christ church And because of that we feel so secure Our hope is in you There's nothing else that we could find this type of joy and hope than in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This God who so sovereignly loves us, who knew us before the foundations of the world, we could not escape his grace and he drew us to himself. Oh Lord, we're confident in you. We're confident in you. And this gives us joy to meet and to love one another. Cause us to be mindful of those around us in a unique and special way, Lord. Father, we pray for our community. We pray for this particular community that you have planted this church in, this group of people that you have ordained to be members here, Lord. We pray for this community that we would be a light. Oh, Lord, don't let us miss this opportunity. Don't let us miss this time. We know you're at work. You've showed a a little bit of birth pains, haven't you, Lord? You showed what you have the power to do just a little bit. And it put the world into a panic. And so, Lord, we have the answer. And cause us to be ready. Ready to give an answer of the hope that is within us. Lord, we do pray that you would strengthen us now as we look into the book of Mark. Particularly this text. The, the great sermon of the Olivet Discord. As you prepared people for the future of what your judgment is going to look like. And what's going to happen And the ugliness that the world will go through at some time. And help us to understand this. And help us to revel in the fact that you are God. And you are on your throne. And you have all things in control. So give us understanding by your spirit through the word of God. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us or you're new to our church, um, uh, we preach expositionally here, so that means we're always in a text. We're working verse by verse through something. Over the last few months, we've been hitting some topics, but yet we've been in a text. If If you'll remember, each of the pastors that teach, and myself included, we'll always be in a text. We think the word of God speaks, so we don't try to read into something to make it work for us we actually study the text and pull out of it. Um, and so at times, we're topical, but we're still expositional, meaning we're gonna use the passage to teach. Now, before, before all this craziness came down, uh, as you remember, some of you, I have been working through the book of Mark. Um, I'm, I'm working in Exodus and on Wednesday nights. We're in, we're in Exodus, I think, 17 this coming Wednesday. Um, but I've been working through the book of Mark, and we took a little hiatus from it. But coming back, we drop right into the middle of the Olivet Discourse. Probably one of the most difficult passages to jump into. And I thought, oh Lord, why are you doing that? Because He sets these things up right, doesn't He? Um, uh, but I think it's very important in this time where you see just snippets, just snippets of the wrath of God that has the, He has the ability to pour out on the world. Oh, this passage is going to teach us of what God's going to do in the end and what He's going to allow to be done. And I think we're going to learn great things of this so follow along this is a passage that has a a lot of work to be done but i think you'll be encouraged as you listen and have your finger in the bible all of the discourse is just an amazing passage of scripture in which the lord it's him jesus here explains the future of israel but not to all of israel i want you to get this but to believing israel You have to understand this, this text is not to all of Israel, to everyone who's ever been an Israelite is going to be saved, Paul sets that record straight in the book of Romans, that it is believing Israel, so he's writing to believing Israel, those currently and those in the future here. Now, unfortunately, many people's end times view, they go astray attempting to read the church into this, or the rapture of some sort. And I want to be very much up front. I don't think the church of the rapture is in this view right here. In this particular passage. So, so we're careful not to read something into the scriptures. But I don't believe that disciples here are at the point um, to represent the church themselves. I, I think they're representing this believing remnant of Israel. Now, The correct interpretation is not understood by whom the disciples are, but by the future of what God is going to do. Now, they're going to ask for a sign. They've done that in verse 5. They want to see a sign. And then one of the questions you have to ask is, are they asking about the future of the church, or are they asking about the future of Israel? In the context. This is where people get lost in end times because they try to read something that's not there. Well, obviously, they're asking about the future of Israel in relationship to the Messiah, the, the kingdom, the temple, and all of those things. This, by no means, clears up everything in this difficult passage. But I want you to understand that they're, they're thinking Israel here. They're thinking kingdom as they go into this. So there are, there are always um, always the right now prophecy right and then there's the future prophecy so when we study prophecy there's some that is unf- unfold and then there's some farther out we kind of kind of a telescopic as you look into scriptures you'll see well that's near and then there's a farther one and so of course that's in this passage as well so the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse is is no easy undertaking but the Lord spoke it I want you to get this Jesus spoke it and he's given us the spirit to help us and we have a good hermeneutic. That means the process of interpreting the text. So we'll strive to understand it the way the Lord gives it. Now, this section of, in Mark 13 is what I call the heart of the Olivet Discourse. And you say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Meaning that when you study Matthew and Luke, there's a larger explanation of it. And so, what I believe is going on here is the heart, the most important thoughts of all of it, discourse Mark brings out as he's been listening to Peter preach this. And he records it by the inspiration of the Spirit. Now, in verses 14 through 13, that's what we're going to focus on today, you will see unparalleled events of a tribulation and a judgment poured out on the earth while the Lord gives clear instruction to his disciples. So, that's what this is about. Next week, we'll get into verse 24 through 27 and maybe further. And that pictures the return of Christ at the end of the age. And and we'll look at that glorious return as he returns with power and authority. And then following that, 28 through 37, as you just glance at your Bible there, Jesus gives a very present tense instruction to his his disciples using the fig tree as an example. And boy, that's a good one too. We'll get into that. But first, let's review real quick because it's been a while since we've been here. Notice in verse one and two, look at those. It says, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So you can see the scene here. Jesus is leaving the temple. The disciples are admiring this incredible structure that Herod had rebuilt and he reminds them, and you remember we talked about this, look, what has happened to the Jews is this temple has become their God in a sense. He is going to teach them that what I am going to usher in, future view of the church, is not something that is to be worshipped. This thing's coming down. And He is prophetically speaking of coming events of 70 AD most likely there. Notice in verse 3 and 4, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple and Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? So here Jesus and his disciples, they're made their way across the Kidred Valley and they're up on top of the Mount of Olives and they're looking across and the disciples say, we need a sign. We need a sign of what's going to take place. They're trying to get their minds around this. So Jesus starts in is what, in what is called the All of it Discourse, a, a phenomenal sermon, of prophecy of what's going to take place in order to answer their questions. Well, first, in verses 5 through 8, there's a warning here to the disciples, but the warning is what happens to the world. Notice this. I hope you remember some of this. It's been quite a few months. Jesus began to say to them, see that to no one mislead you. So so it's a warning right now. It's one of the first warnings. You see that, see that. It's an imperative there. He does three of them in this text. See that no one misleads you. So he's telling them that there's people coming that are gonna be constantly misleading you, constantly trying to pull you away from the truth, and here's what they're gonna do. This is happening today. (laughs) It happened this week. This is what they'll say. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will mislead. There's governors that step in front of God and say, God did not do this, I did this. We did this. I mean, you're hearing this kind of stuff. Then, and then they'll start these rumors and, these, and wars will happen, verse seven. This is, I think, what happened. We talked about this. Sometimes the church gets caught up in this and they go, oh, there's wars and there's rumors of wars. Oh, God's coming back any moment. No, this, he's talking about this is what happens to people. They, 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 they bring this false teaching. They create rumors. They create strife. They, they create problems. It's on your television. It's, it's in conversations everywhere. It's just constant strife is being created. Jesus is warning them of that. They're misleading. And then he says in the end of seven these things must take place, but that is not the end. So he's Sharing what's going to go on in the, in the world. Nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. A little bit of that happening even in our own nation. These things must take place and there will be earthquakes in various places and there will also be famines. And these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Right? Ladies, that doesn't need a great <laughs> illustration there. Um, if you've had false labor ever before... When your first mom, as our daughter in law recently went through, it's, oh, this is it, this is it. No, no, no. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> and that's what we're experiencing now. We're experiencing great breath, uh, birth pains. The, the world's going through this. There's lots of people out there mocking God and saying this and starting wars and rumors of wars and creating <laughs> havoc within the world. Jesus is telling them this is going to happen. These are just birth pains. Verses 9 through 13, he now turns to the disciples and gives them instructions. He says, be on your guard. This is the second imperative now. Be on your guard. Be ready. For they will deliver you to the courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake. For my sake as a testimony to them and the gospel must first be preached to the nation. So this is going to happen. You're going to go. Part of the way they get to the gospel as a nation is Paul's going to go before great rulers. And he's going to share the gospel there and it's going to get pushed. And all this persecution that happens to the early church pushes the gospel out. That's why Peter starts his epistle and says to all those in Asia and Bithynia and so forth. and he, They've been pushed out. That must happen. It's still happening today. So the gospel must first be preached before the end. It's part of the birth pains within that. We're preaching the gospel in all of this. We see this today. It's why they say, be ready, church. They're frightened out there. They don't know the truth. And you and I have it. Not only will they be delivered to the courts, but they will flog them in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must be first preached to the nations. When, you, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry bef- about what you will say, right? Beforehand, what am I going to do? But, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks but the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God strengthen Peter. As he, think about what he did, he stood before the pillars of Christ in Acts chapter 4 there. And did he go, oh, boy, I don't know what I'm going to say. These guys are really bad. They killed Jesus. No, he stood up and his m- opened his mouth, and God just flooded truth through his mouth. The same one who denied the Lord Jesus Christ now speaks as the Spirit emboldens him through the knowledge of the Word of God. And it got bad, right? He tells the disciples, look, brothers will betray brothers to death. Fathers, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is here. This is the setup for the teaching that's coming. This is what's going on in the world. There's these, there's these people who will rise constantly. They make themselves out to be God. They make themselves out to be false messiahs. They stir up the world with fear-mongering constantly. And then they attack Christians. They go after them. They go after those who follow God. They go after those who follow Christ. And Jesus is warning the disciples of that. And then, after all that, he begins to lay down some very sobering truths of what's going to happen in the future. But I want to say this. Though these truths can be applied to Christians. And we can think about this, because I know as I read that text, you're going, well, is this happening now? Yes, some of our missionaries have suffered some of these things. We know Christians that have gone through this. The text is very Jewish and, and has the disciples and has believing Israel in view right here. The church does not exist yet. This, is, this is, has the disciples and the future of believing Israel in view. The church is not in view. The disciples They're looking forward to the kingdom of God. At this point, think about them. They're thinking about the kingdom of God. So I don't believe the rapture is in this text. I believe in the rapture, but I don't think it's in this text. So you say, well, well, how does that work out? How do we get to the understanding of that? Well, we're gonna tackle that in the next couple of weeks, but let me just say this. As the apostles grew in their understanding of this passage, as they grew in the understanding of of Old Testament texts like Daniel and Zechariah, they begin to understand that God had a greater plan. The plan was not just Israel. At this point, they don't understand that. They, they think that God's coming, Christ is gonna come, he's gonna set his kingdom up. They don't even have his death in view yet. They think this is kingdom time and they're in a good position and yet as these apostles went out after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they began to put things together. They began to understand the teachings of Christ. They began to piece the Old Testament truths together and begin to say, oh, God has another people that he's gathering now. And we see that, and we'll talk about that more in come. Well, let's look at a couple of thoughts today. Again, kind of introduction. Look at number one. Mark's gospel helps us navigate the difficult the difficulties of end-time prophecy. Mark's gospel helps us navigate the difficulties of end-time prophecy. One of the things I love about Mark is it's concise. It's straight to the point um, in, in a lot of ways. And, I, and I, here's what I, I, we believe as we started the book of Mark way back. You remember this. That most likely Mark was recording much of what Peter was saying. Peter was preaching, Mark was kind of uh, an under-shepherd with him, working with him, and he was recording. And and doubtlessly, here, Peter, after hearing the great, fuller version of the Olivet Discourse, is more concise as he brings this down. And so when we study this, we get the whole view of the Olivet Discourse, but we get the uh, abridged version here, in a sense. Now, with that said, the disciples... um, they're overwhelmed with this desire for the kingdom. Don't forget that. Remember, not they're, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're coming down right after that. They start arguing who gets to sit on the left and the right. They are overwhelmed with a desire for the kingdom. And Jesus begins to describe this end-time crisis. And he's answering their question. They said, give us a sign in verse 4, right? And so now he begins to do that. And every, think about it, Everything in the disciples thinking all their hope is that this is the master he's here he's setting his kingdom up and we are going to be in a good position now remember their views of the future were still essentially jewish their messianic kingdom right it's relationship to people of israel at this point there's no clear conception in their minds of the church this is, this is an important point. This is why, why people get lost in eschatology and start reading things in, and we get all these charts and graphs and all kinds of people believe in a lot of things. They don't have a clear conception of this. It's not till the cross, it's not till the resurrection. It's not till they see God start saving Gentiles. It's not towards they put all that together do they realize that this was far more, this was pointing to something even greater? It's beyond the kingdom coming at that moment. So I believe if Jesus had spoken of a future rapture of a Gentile Jewish church or a Jewish Gentile church, it would have added to their confusion greatly. And remember this, the disciples had asked for a sign and they do not have the spirit of God yet. I have the spirit of God and I've been studying this for three months I think I kind of got an understanding of it. So they're hearing this and they're going, Whoa, uh, I'm not sure what this means. Aren't you you setting your kingdom up now? Uh, Aren't you here now? And we get to rule and reign with you now? Aren't you going to crush the Romans and all of our enemies? Aren't you doing this right now? Very difficult. Very difficult when we slip our feet into their shoes. And even with limited information that Jesus has given the disciples, they wouldn't have understood this until they received the Spirit of God. Now, the sign given here is interpret it two ways. There are those who that this as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's lots of people, I have dear friends that hold that view. And then there's lots of people that believe this is a sign of the eschatological end of time. Um, and there's, and there's, there's a wide gap between that. But I want to help you as we go through this and you'll hear my views as we go through this. I I believe that Mark is writing before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem here. He writes um, somewhere in the mid-50s this narrative. And so that hasn't taken place and certainly there's close parallels between the two events when you think about end times and the uh the end of a uh, tribulation period all that takes place there and then what happened on 70 ad there are some close parallels and when you study it, you go wow i can see where there are some thoughts and some leaning towards that in fact dr luke um records in chapter 21 verse 20 he says that jerusalem will be surrounded by armies now there's Two thoughts and and I I I tend to lean towards that Christ is acknowledging that 70 AD is going to happen and it's going to be terrible and there will be armies that will surround Jerusalem and and wipe out the temple and so forth so I think that opens that door for it but what's interesting and and I know this is we're swimming in the deep end of the pool here but Matthew and Mark don't record any of that Luke Luke takes a little snippet, verse twenty of chapter twenty one, down for a few verses, and almost almost this this destruction of Jerusalem. So, in other words, I think Luke is recording of that section of all of the court all of a discourse um, something that's not in the rest of them. So my thought, and here this is just mine. Now this is my commentary. I think the Lord, in all of it, discord, the greater understanding of it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he actually records both events, but the greater event is the end time event. That's what I think he's coming to, because I think the seventy A.D. falls short. It doesn't answer some of the questions. It's not connected to the return of Christ like the end times of Christ and His. Day where he pours out judgment upon the world and then his return immediately behind it. There is a close connection to that. And then the writers of the apostles, and we'll look at this in Second Thessalonians just in a second, are so clear as they take this text and they begin to understand it from the book of Daniel and start to understand who this man of lawlessness is that this text is starting to develop. So this passage supports the understanding that the abomination of desolation, and this is where... I know we're in a kind of a seminary class here a little bit, but bear with me here because we've we got to get through this. The abomination of desolation points to a person, to a person. I'm going to prove that to you. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD, I think, stands in the foreground. So as you look at this text and you focus in the telescope— You see this destruction, and there's evidence of it in Luke that this is gonna take place. This is, of course, previous to this. But beyond that is something greater. There's a greater fulfillment, and I think this is what the Olivet Discourse was written for. Second thought. The deception of the man of lawlessness is revealed. The deception of the man of lawlessness is revealed. Look at verse 14 with me. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now here, Jesus gives instructions to help those understand in time, final days, final days of the tribulation. Notice it says, when you see the abomination of desolation. So he's saying there's a definite time. It's observable in the future. When you see it, you'll see it. This is not something spiritualized. It's not something hidden. It's it's very observable, isn't it? When you see it, but but yet the time is left indefinite. Matthew says it this way, um, and he connects it to the book of Daniel. Matthew records it this way. Therefore, chapter 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place let the reader understand Ooh, so now we have a text that connects us to a prominent prominent old testament prophecy and so this is not a new term i want you to understand as disciples are hearing this and they hear this term abomination of desolation it is not a new term They've heard this before. They've read the book of Daniel. They've heard the prophecies of this and how, what, this, what this means, various prophecies that this could be. This is not a new term. In fact, Daniel uses it three times. You go, well, what is this term? Well, the word abomination denotes that object of disgust. The, the, the word means hateful, despicable, detestable. That's what this word means. This is, this is not a light word. This is a word that carries a heavy condemnation to it. I mean, when it's said, they go, well, that's despicable. That's disgusting. So this word is, when it's brought out, it grabs people's attention. And then, and then the word that's tied to it is desolation. Well, this describes the profound effects of abomination. It leaves things deserted. It leaves things desolate. It ruins everything. It's, it's sacrilege. It, it disgraces. That's the condition of the abomination. And in the Old Testament, the term was used to describe idolatry or sacrilege. It's, it's about godlessness, paganism. It's about blasphemy. So now we begin to start to think: oh, there may be something greater than just the destruction of a building. There might be something greater here as we start to look at this. So the term is symbolic of heathenism. It's it's something that's detestable to God and his true people. It, it portrays not the destruction of a temple, but rather what takes place in it, something that is profane. Remember, the temple was ravaged many times. You can go back and study, right? There's times at the end of the nations before they start to go off and be trampled off into into slavery and into captivity in the other nations, the the temple gets ravaged many, many times. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar himself probably ravages it the most. And never yet are those recorded as an abomination of desolation. So there's something greater here. What Jesus is doing, he's something speaking of something greater that's going to actually happen here. The Book of Revelation uses the word as well. It describes the wicked city of Babylon with these terms, and and says that anyone who practices these type of abomination of desolation will not be permitted in heaven. So this goes beyond pushing over stones and destroying a city. Now, as mentioned earlier, the Bible says that Daniel uses this three times, right? The abomination of desolations. Chapter nine, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 31. And chapter 12, verse 11. Now, it's important that we go back and think through this, and we don't have time for me to drag you and look all that through, but I want to I'll bring you up to speed just a little bit here. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, this is a prominent one, the middle one. Here, this term is used, and it's actually a prophecy of what's going to happen in the intertestinal period. So in the intertestinal period, Daniel begins to prophesy something that's going to happen. This abomination um, of desolation is going to happen, and he begins to speak of an event Well, this event unfolds in in 167 BC by Antichrist Epiphanes. Remember him, don't you? He shows up. They wipe out Israel. They come in. He goes to the altar. He takes a pig. And he sacrifices on the altar, on the Hebrew altar. And blasphemes God, profanes God. And then on top of that, he sets up an altar to Zeus where the altar of God was. See the difference of abomination of desolation versus destruction of a temple? Now we're profaning the most high God. Now we're blaspheming his name. And this takes place in a terrible way. Jews are slaughtered by the thousands. Many are run off and put into slavery. And the day they overthrew Antichus IV, the Jews still celebrate to this day. Now, Antiochus IV and his abomination of desolation was only a telescopic view of his coming. There's something even beyond that. And this is what Daniel is doing. In the other two passages in Daniel, 9.27 and 12.11, they center around a coming of an antichrist. And this is what Jesus is getting at. There's something greater. There's something coming beyond this. Something worse than Antiochus. Worse than the destruction of the temple. There's a man of lawlessness coming. Now, look at verse 14 and notice the phrase, standing where it should not be, let the red reader understand. Well, here the ESV does a little better job translated than the NAS. The, NSV, NS, the ESV translates this way. Standing where he should not be. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, I went to seminary. (laughs) And your Greek helps you do that. You begin to see that Mark's expression lays stress on this masculine participle. It's a masculine participle. And I'm not sure why, and there's a note in many of the NSB Bibles of this note, but um, it should be translated as a personal masculine pronoun. And the fact that Mark deliberately uses a masculine point, the fact points to the fact that it's regarded that the abomination of desolation is speaking of a person, not an event. There's someone's coming who's going to profane the name of God, who's going to blaspheme in a way that is beyond anything the world has ever seen or Israel's ever seen. And Jesus is preparing them for this, and it seems... Clear that Mark was thinking About the person of the antichrist As he records this or Peter As he spoke on this Now I told you the apostles start understanding more After the resurrection look with me at 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2 Because here we begin to see Where the apostles are really starting to understand That this thing was more Greater than just some Jewish kingdom Before the cross First of all think about that Who gets into that kingdom Before the cross The rich young ruler isn't available. (laughs) He thought he did everything from his youth. Nobody gets into the kingdom of God. And so it was a foolish thinking that they could keep the law in order to enter the the kingdom of God. And so the cross changes everything. It changes their views. Think about this. Peter is, he's still hanging on to his Jewish traditions, right? He's not, he's not, he says in Acts 10, no, nothing's ever touched my lips that was unclean. And God's showing him a vision, right? And here's all this great ham steaks and hot dogs coming down and so forth. You remember this Acts 10? And he goes, Eat, I've made this clean. He goes, Oh, no, 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 no. My lips have never touched this stuff. And he goes, Hey, and by the way, I got a Gentile that I'm drawing to myself. You go preach the gospel to him. And his mind starts opening greater, right? Paul does everything he could to reach the Jewish nation, doesn't he? He pursues them and preaches in every synagogue and they continue to persecute him and blaspheme Christ. And eventually, he himself is driven to the Gentiles and they start to understand that, oh, there's something greater going on here. Now, look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 they begin to understand the narrative that Jesus is writing to the apostles and they begin to exhort the church on this and begin to help them understand that there's a greater view going on here. There's somebody that, that God is gonna to allow to raise to power who is gonna be a man of lawlessness. Now, this is intriguing, so watch, read along. And children, young people, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, this is real. This is God talking to us about future events and what are going to happen to this world. So, read along with me, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said the exact same way don't let anybody deceive you. They're following with his teaching, aren't they? For it will co- not come unless the apostasy comes first. Right? This return of Christ, this kingdom that he's going to set up in this world where he puts his feet down on this earth again. There's an apostasy that must take place first. And then he says this, And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. What a title. This is one bad dude. He hates God, wants to replace God. Look at verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now has that happened yet, ever? When Atychus a uh, uh, came, the fourth came, what did he set up? He set up an altar of Zeus. Not this guy. This guy has set himself up as God. There's a unique difference between this. This is why I think this passage, Mark passage looking farther down the road. Verse five, do you do not remember that while I was still with you I was telling you these things? Paul's been teaching these things, right? And you know what restraints him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. There's there's a restraint that's going on in the world. Verse seven, for the the mystery of lawlessness is at work, already at work, and only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and lots of discussion about that, but it seems to lean towards the restrainer. There's a point where this restrainer will be removed from the world, and lawlessness will rule. So this man's gonna be right at home. I think some of you go, well, I think it's happening there today. Oh, (laughs) You ain't seen nothing yet. What's gonna to happen to this world? Verse eight, then that lawless son will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with his breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. So this is right at the end. This man is set up. He's, he's a lawless man. He's made himself out to be God. And guess who shows up? And you're gonna see this next week in, in Mark 13. Jesus shows up. And how does he defeat him according to this text? He breathes on him. See, this man thinks he's got power. <laughs> the breath of God slays this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness. Look at verse 9. That is the one who's coming in accord with the activity of Satan. So, what's behind this man? Well, Satan's behind him with all power and signs and uh, uh, false wonders. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive, listen to this, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So, in all of this train wreck of eschatology here, of this godless, lawless man taking over, there's a definition of the saved right in this text. They are the ones who are given the love of the truth. What a statement. And so it tells us even in these end times, in these desperate times, as the wrath of God has been poured out on the world and things are going crazy and lawless men are running the place, there are still those who have been given the love of truth. And before I go any farther, I have to ask you, do you have the love of truth in you? Not to know truth so you can battle somebody and, and, and fight with them in some way. Do you have the love of truth? That's much different That's tied to the gospel. That's tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's tied to I will suffer because you're worth of it. Because the truth has set me free. And I don't have to fight for my own opinions and my own views and my own own thoughts. I can trust you, God. That you came and you did what you said you did. And you are who you said you are. And in that time, there will be those. And this is so precious. And the Bible's writing, I think, for those who will read that, particularly in Mark 13, to remind them, I am here and I'm coming back, and you will not fail. What a precious thought. So, while Antiochus here, or Antichus here, the fourth, he erects this idol of Zeus in the temple, I think this is pointing to something so much greater. This Antichrist is going to exalt himself as God and demand worship of the people. And then it goes on, and we don't have time to read all this because time is slipping from me as you turn back to Mark, but he'll blaspheme the true God and his religion will be promoted by a false prophet who will be empowered by Satan and do miracles and wonders. And if you keep reading there in 2 Thessalonians 9 and 10 and then on to 11 through 15 and then Revelation chapter 13, you see that this man and what's behind him and this false prophet and how he's empowered by Satan himself. And then notice as we go back, just as we finish up verse 14, let the reader understand. Well, it seems clear that Mark knew that the Olivet Discourse was not merely intended for the 12, but for believers who would follow even to the end of the age. And I just want you to think about this. I personally believe and I, and I marvel at the fact that the Spirit record the scriptures for those in the midst of the final tribulation that they could read God's word, be equipped and stand in unparalleled times. Let the reader be aware. Let the reader understand. And I don't pretend to know all when the Lord is coming back and when this final tribulation that God dumps upon this earth is. But here's what I do know. God's word won't fail, and his elect won't fail. We'll see that as we go on. Third thought. The kindness of God in the midst of terror. The kindness of God in the midst of terror. Well, these commands pertain to the reaction of the appearance of this man, this abomination of desolation in the temple. There's a reaction here that's gonna happen, and during this final tribulation, all the followers of Christ will be assaulted, all of them. But Jews particularly, who believe in Christ, or, or they're close to the temple and, and in, in Jerusalem there, they are going to be the first targets of the Antichrist, because it's there, the Bible says, where he will set up his throne, right? And call himself to be God. And then he'll spread from there from, to the whole world. So notice at the end of verse 14, he tells them to run, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When this happens, Jesus is telling them, when this happens, you better run. You better run. The word flee is a root word in Greek for fugitive. You're now a fugitive. Hmm. That could be true pretty soon around here, couldn't it? Christians could be fugitives. It wouldn't take them very hard, very very long to say, well, if you don't have this vaccine, or if you meet together, if you do that. What? Look, they shut us down like that. Wouldn't be very hard. But I don't think we've seen anything yet. I think this is still pertaining to events that are gonna take place in the future. This is going to be, again, a very bloody time for the nation of Israel and for all other Gentiles who look to salvation in Christ alone. The prophet Zechariah speaks of this time. He gives further insight through chapter 10 through 12 and into 13. There he tells us that a two-thirds of the Jews will die. They'll be slaughtered. Slaughtered as they flee Jerusalem and Judea area. Two thirds of the Jewish population will die. But in the midst of that, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says there will, be a, there will be a remnant that God grants faith to, and they will turn. And in verse 10, is such a beautiful verse. It says they will look upon the one whom they pierced and believe. Not all of Israel, he has a remnant. He will gather them in in this last moment. And they will see the Savior that they pierced, and they will believe into salvation. And so the Olivet Discourse does resemble some of Antichrist's raid in, in 167 B.C. and some of the Holocaust of 70 A.D. It does resemble some of that, but it goes so much farther. When Jesus, Remember, when Jesus is on on the road to the cross. He's walking through Jerusalem. He's weary. He's been beat on spit. I mean, we'll see that as we get farther in Mark. It's just an amazing testimony of of what he would do to go to the cross for us. But along there, he kind of fails. His strength fails a bit, and they bring Simon out of Cyrene, and he begins to carry the cross. And and, and now this crowd, Luke 23, verse 27 says, is now gathered and followed him, and the women are mourning and lamenting over him in verse 27, and then Jesus stops, and he turns to them, and he says, his daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. And then he begins to speak about this. He says this, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for before, for behold, the day is coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs who never bore, and the breasts that were never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. And think about this. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? If they do these things with Christ on the earth, with the spirit of God among his people, where life is real, God is here, and there is life in here. When that is removed, can you imagine what they'll do? And even in his way to the cross, he remarks about this in-time events that are coming to what doesn't, what doesn't happen in 70 A.D. And I, I know so many people want to attach this to 70 A.D., but what's attached to this is so many things. There's the destruction of the nations. Well, that doesn't happen in 70 A.D., Jesus goes on to say that he's going to destroy the nations. Well, that doesn't happen in 70 A.D. The return of Christ, we're going to see, verses 24 through 27, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is coming to earth. He's bringing with him the saints that are above, and he's going to raise the saints below, and there's going to be this collection of people that are already here, and those who went through the tribulation, and stood firm, and believed in God. He's going to have a gathering. He's going to put his feet on the ground. Oh, there's so much more. I don't think that happened in 70 A.D., And as hard as 70 A.D. was, these things didn't take place. Then there's the judgment of the nations by the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us throughout these texts. And he will will be followed by Christ's earthly reign over all the world. And these fulfilled prophecies indicate a horrific event that far exceeds 70 A.D. Now, with all that said, I want you to see briefly as we move fast here, That God is kind even in his warning of destruction for these future people. Notice what he does. Verse 14, Into verse 14. He says, flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. Seek safety and refuge when you see this. When you see this, remember he says, when you see this man, when you see the desolation, the abomination of desolation, when you see him, run. He's concerned and is, is he talking about the elect? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he's just telling the people who hear this, run. This man's gonna destroy you. It goes on, look at verse 15. The one who's on the housetop must go down or go, or, or, or go in to get must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. Do you understand that these ancient houses had a stairway on the outside of their house and they pretty much enjoyed very outdoor living because it was hot and the cool of the day and they did everything from pray, worship, party, um, eat, everything on the top of the hill, on the top of their, their houses. And, and here Jesus says, when you see this man, when you see this arising, run. Don't stop and get personal effects out of, out of your house. Run. He moves on to 16. There's one who is in the field, must not turn back to get his coat. One might think, oh, I better get my coat. It could be cold out there. He says, forget your coat, run. I mean, this is desperate. This is, this is something beyond what we've ever seen. You're going to see that in just in a moment. This is something so drastic, you don't have a second to hesitate. Look at verse 16. 17, this is very troubling as what I just returned from. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. I just watched my daughter in law. Um, she had been through a very difficult uh, delivery, it ended up in an emergency C section. Um, and she's fine, and Oliver's fine. But as we got there, it was hard for her to get up. <laughs> she was very sore, as you ladies would know. There's no way. She was gonna run. (laughs) She was trouble walking from the couch to the kitchen. And I thought about this because there was a lot of downtime as we were just holding our grandson and being with our family there and just enjoying time. I was doing a little studying on this. And I remember looking at her and Oliver and saying, oh God, be gracious. And he is gracious. He says in verse 18, pray it's not winter. That would be disastrous Cold, swollen rivers running through snow and people are trying to kill you. See, the wages of sin is death. It always has been death. It always will be death. That's what comes. Reject Christ. It's the greatest sin of all. Reject the only one who can save you. Death comes. God is a just and holy God. Yes, God is a loving God and displays his grace and mercy. This world tastes the love of God every day. Every day, The sun came up on the wicked today. The sun came up on those who profaned his name as he went to sleep last night. God's given them food and water and shelter and clothing. He's given them finances. He's given them uh, all what they need in this life. But there's a day coming where the wages are due. And either Jesus Christ took those wages for you or you take them yourself. And this passage is showing us that there is a just God. He is as much loving God, fully loving as he is just and holy. He is not diminished in anyone. He is not greater in one than the other because he's perfect in all of them. And he will pour his wrath out on this world but that doesn't mean that he is not kind. He does not weep over people. Here in this text, these are many who are, don't know him or whoever would profess him because two-thirds of them die, according to Zechariah. But he tells them to run. He's concerned about them. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32 says "As For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord Yahweh God. Therefore, repent and live. God does not take pleasure in the death. And when we study in times, particularly this kind of abomination of desolation where the destruction is so deep and so wide, your tendency is go, man, God is is mean. Kids, he's not. Don't think that. Don't compare him to me or your father or your mother or your mean friend. He's not that way. He's a God of kindness. Don't you know that it's his kindness that leads you to repentance? And yet he's a just God. The wicked will perish someday if they do not repent and live, friend. Because he's a just God. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, "As I live," declares Yahweh God, "I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live." Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? And then he puts this in here, and this is right in our context. O house of Israel. There's too many people out there to think that because the Israelite was an Israelite that they're all gonna be saved. The Bible is very clear, not all Israel is Israel. It's just like you and I, we come by faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone. And even though in the Old Testament they did not know the name Jesus yet, they believed that God would somehow deliver them, would somehow impute his righteousness and take their sin and they've had faith that God would do that. But God is not a God that we know as wrath. In fact, we know his love. And even to the wicked, he is kind. And my point here is as I see this, and I read these verses where he says, run, flee. These are people who will die. And he's already telling them, go. This lawless man is wicked. Fourth and final. The greatest suffering and persecution can never take God's elect. Never take God's elect. Look at verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Matthew says that Jesus called this the great tribulation. Emphasis on that word, meaning there's nothing greater than this. And so this verse holds a future fulfillment it's greater than anything. And, and, and Jesus himself says that this tribulation, there's nothing like it in history. And, and just think about the significance of that statement. Wait a minute. Jesus, the flood was pretty bad. I, isn't that correct? All life, everything in this nostril that had breath in his nostril died except eight people and two of every kind of species he put on the ark. That's pretty bad. Jesus says this is worse. Well, how about the Exodus? We've been studying that. I don't think we understand the body count in Exodus. When the angel of death slays the firstborn man and beast. The destruction of an entire army. Worse than that. It goes on. I just started writing things down. The destruction of Canaan. Israel comes into the land. He just wipes out nations. Wipes them out. Destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. That was awful. Daniel, most likely, my commentary here, is dragged off to Babylon because his parents are probably dead because they were murdered. Jesus says it's worse than that. Well, about, about Antichus, the slaying of a pig and setting up Zeus, an altar in the temple, worse than that? What about 70 AD where millions of Jews were killed or put into slavery, worse than that? Let's get into modern era. How about the Black Plague? You wanna talk about pandemics? 200 million people that they know of probably died in that pandemic in the 1300s. 13, uh, excuse me, 200 million, and it says the third of the the writers of this say that the third of the world suffered in some way from it. Worse than that, Jesus says. Wanna get into some world wars? You know, we have a pretty good idea of the body count of the United States officers and army men and women through our wars. What we don't have is an accurate count of the rest of the world. There's no way to know the millions who died in World War I, World War II. Vietnam, we have a pretty good idea of how many we lost. We have walls with their names and so forth. There is no count in Vietnam, Korea. They have no idea how many villagers and people that don't have birth certificates and so forth out. Jesus says it's worse. See, this is why I think this is pointing to something farther than 70 AD, and I don't want to lessen 70 AD. That was a terrible, terrible event. But this is worse. Jesus says it's worse since creation. And, it's, and as hard as it is to understand, we have to believe that the book of Revelation is prophetic, and it speaks of the future, doesn't it? Because it starts telling us that some of these things are going to happen that are worse. And if you read Revelation chapter 6 through 16, you can do this on your own. The apostle John starts to talk about unparalleled horrors that are going to happen to this world and to people in the end times as Christ starts to pull out his bowl, seal, and trumpet judgments. Listen to this. Here's just some of them, not all of them. Massive earthquakes earthquakes worldwide. Hail and fire consuming a third of the world's vegetation. That means Starvation. We've never seen that. Hail and fire consuming the vegetation. Oceans turning to blood. Fresh water made poisonous. Sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Countless demons released from a pit to terrorize mankind. A third of the world's population will die. Sores cover the bodies of people inflicting great pain. uh, Entire seas will turn to blood and all the creatures in them will die. Rivers turn to blood killing life in them. The earth will experience extreme heat and extreme cold. It's an environmental nightmare that goes on, such as the world has never seen, water sources will dry up, even the appearance of the world will change. The world has never seen anything that's coming. This is why Jesus says, run, run. Humanity waits the final days just prior before The Lord returns and sees his judgment. And look, if you're struggling to get your mind around verse 19, look at 20 with me. (laughs) Unless the Lord had shortened the days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Oh my goodness. I think this verse is even stronger proof of the consuming fierceness of these last days unless the Lord, Jehovah God, in his sovereign control of the affairs of this world, does not graciously decree a limitation to those days. Nobody survives, verse 20 says. The word, you say, well, it's all past tense. Yeah, because he already decreed this. These are already things that are done. He knows they're done. He knows this is what's going to take place. This is why he's telling them. Look again at verse 20. We begin to see that God will act on behalf of his elect. He said, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. I love this passage. It it brings such hope. He's watching over his elect. There's going to be people who are elect in this final days. And God is... Is caring for them and taking them through this great tribulation, Matthew calls it. And all that the Father gives him, Jesus says to us in John chapter 10, I'll lose what? None of them. I'll lose none of them, even in this great tribulation. The word chose is in the middle voice. I love that when the middle voice is used because it means God acted to choose them for himself. I've set these people aside for myself. No matter what the Antichrist does and his savage assault on believers, none of my elect would have survived if I don't put a stop to it, is what he's saying. I'm stopping it because of them. What a statement. See, God is the promise keeper, and he always protects his own. And Don't forget that. He always protects his own, and he loves his church. And this is why my eschatology leans certain ways, because our Lord loves his bride. And he will come and get us. And he will protect us from the greatest atrocities that man will ever see. Because he loves his bride. But he's still got a work to do. He's still got collection of certain Jews and Gentiles that he's gonna collect. And they're gonna go through this very, very difficult time. But he loves them and he puts an end. Otherwise they would be wiped out. And look, many Christians in past, present, and future suffer persecution even to death. But God always perseveres a remnant on this earth. And I believe this text teaches us that God wants a remnant on this earth as he brings his saints in tow. He wants a remnant there to meet him when Jesus puts his feet on this earth. Because he loves his church. And he's always among them. Look at verses 21 through 23, and we'll try to wrap this up. And then... If anyone say to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Not only is there extreme suffering, but there's extreme deception going on during this time, Remember the Antichrist, and if you go on and read this in the latter part of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and then you'll see it very clearly in Revelation chapter 13 that he has these false prophets that are controlled by Satan himself, and they're very motivating. They're doing miracles and wonders and signs, trying to deceive, trying to lead away. and he warns them of this. He says, and then if anyone says to you, see, he's, he, he's speaking to believers, right? If anybody says this to you as a believer in Christ, And then he uses this term behold over and over in the text. It means they're going to come with excitement. These pretenders are going to produce claims that they're the Messiah, that they're the ones that that have the right to the throne. And the Antichrist himself will produce himself as God. But the remnant are commanded to reject all such claims. See, he's preparing them. Matthew described is the difference between them. He says the very same thing, and then he adds this verse. He says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes in the west, so will the, sun, the coming of the son of man be. And that's, there's nothing like Christ. What he means by that, these guys have a little bit of flash to them. Christ is like a bolt of lightning that goes across the world. You'll know the difference. And Christ is reminding these are false. They're weak. They're flashing in the pans. I'm going to be a bolt of lightning when I show up. And that's our Savior. Nevertheless, these will constantly barrage the the, false, uh, the Christians with these false Christs, these false prophets, and these pseudo Christs and pseudo prophets are all coming at this time. But notice in verse twenty two that these false Christs and these false prophets—they're puppets of Satan—and they'll show many signs and wonders. And, and notice it uses the word to lead astray. That word means seduction. And every horrible thing you think about that word is in there. It's, it, he'll they'll use everything they can do to seduce people away from God. This is their goal. And the diabolical aim to lure believers from the path of truth. The elect from believing in Christ. You'll see that in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelations. And then it says, if possible. And I love that little phrase because really what it means is that that it implies that they will not succeed, but it shows the strength of the seduction. If possible, it's impossible to take the elect, but it shows the power of that seduction. And God's elect will never fail because Christ will lose what? None of them. And they'll go through it. Finally, verse 23. For the third time, Jesus commands the listener to be ready. Take heed. This is the third imperative so far in this. This all of it discourse. Take heed. It's, it's a command. It's imperative. He said in verse five, see to it. Verse nine, be on guard. Verse 23, now take car, take heed. All, all imperatives. And there, there's this beautiful blend of human responsibility and the sovereign of God, isn't it? And you and I live under that. We believe in that God is sovereign in all things. We don't sit back and go, well, he's sovereign. I'm just going to, you know, maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I won't. God's sovereign. No, there's this beautiful blend of human responsibility, responding to the graciousness of God in our lives, obeying him, living for him, dealing with sin, repenting of it, turning of it, because he is sovereign. And so he challenges him, take heed, do something with this. And then he says, look, I've said everything. And you go, well, is it everything? Well, I think that's what it means. It seems simply everything you need to not be led astray. I've had so many people ask me if, if things get really bad will, and, and they're going to kill Christians like they have down through Christendom or they're doing in other parts of the world will I be able to stand? If you are a believer brother or sister in this room you will stand because God will strengthen you. You don't need it right now <laughs> but in the time of need he will give what? Grace. And so he's reminding them these. Let me close with these. I don't think we're in these final days yet. I think we're in the birth pains. And I think as Americans, we've lived a pretty good life here, haven't we? We've been blessed beyond. I, I love my travels and my preaching and training pastors around the world because it reminds me, hey, this is not our home. God sure gave us a good one here in, in America. We're very comfortable. We're meeting Nobody's got a gun to our head, no threatening. I think we're seeing some birth pains. We're seeing a very divided America. I mean, you gotta make a stand or you're this. And you, if you don't make a stand here, you're that. You're, you're, you're railroaded into something. You're constantly barged by fear out of this box that sits in your living room. I just constantly, and these are birth pains. They're birth pains, brothers and sisters. The end's still to come. And God will strengthen you. in it. But right now, think about this, and I want to close with what I started with. Church, he is here. He is active and present. He lives within us. We are the bride of Christ. He loves us. He died for us. He empowers us. We say in his strength, the same power that raised him from the dead lives within us. That world is a mess out there. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We do. We actually know what's going to happen in the very end because of this text. We have the answer. And it isn't some prideful thing, but it's bold humbleness I know that's a mixture of words. We boldly, we do not recant. Jesus Christ alone is our salvation. We put our faith in him. We trust in him. We believe in him. Yes, I can be scared at times because I don't quite know. But then I run to my God who hears my prayer. The Bible says his ear is attentive to us. He's listening to us. He's given us a book to know him and follow him. And we find strength. And then he gives us a body, a family. You and me, all of us together so we can encourage when one is weak the other one is strong and we, and we live this life and so when people come in that door and you interact with them as your neighbors and in, in the store you got something to tell them. And they may reject it. They may spit in your face. I don't know what they'll do. Or they may fall on their knees and say what must I do to be saved? And you have the answer. So church we're living during a pregnancy right now and the birth pains are strong. Be ready. You need to tell people of the hope that lies within you. Amen? Father in heaven, we marvel at these texts. Jesus with these 12 men are sitting on a mountain, a hill, looking across to Jerusalem. He's speaking about things. At this point, they have no idea. They don't understand it. They're still waiting to sit on his right and his left. But he's giving... He's given them a sign, the one they asked for. And eventually there is going to be this man that God allows to come, an antichrist, the antichrist. There are many antichrists in the world, but this will be the antichrist. And he will take his place in the temple of God. He will call himself God. He will act as though he is God. And he will cause great problems to this earth. Combine that with your judgment upon the earth that you pour out, Lord, things will be chaotic. Chaotic. And so we are very grateful we live in this time, in this part of the age. But yet that man will not have his way. Jesus, when you return, you will slay him with your breath, as we read. And he will be cast into utter darkness with Satan and his angels. And there they will be condemned forever. And the church, the believers, those who put their faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, through the word alone, for your glory alone, by faith alone, they will live eternally with you. And they will go on to worship you forever. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us through This is a challenging text, Lord, but we're committed to teaching your word verse by verse so we don't skip these, Lord, but we're glad we don't because this gives us confidence in a God who has all things in control. We thank you, Lord. Father, right now I just want to pray for those who are struggling. Maybe there's some here today that are afraid of things that are going on. They don't know how to respond to all the allegations of racism and hate and bad cops and bad people and good people and all the things that get thrown at them, Lord. I pray that you would help them put their faith in Jesus. Even in these tough times. They will realize that Christ loves his elect. He will lose none of them. And we press on because he has saved us. So give them strength, Lord. Father, I finally just end this prayer for any of those that are here or hear this recorded or hear this sermon at some time that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that I pray that you would use this text to awaken them, Lord, that your spirit would awaken them to the wages of sin. You will judge it. In this life, you will judge it, but worse, you'll judge it in the next. And so, Lord, I pray that you would save people. We know that you have to do it, but we can be the lighthouse. We can proclaim this light individually and corporately. Help us do that for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.